You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-hosts Tony and Michelle and we are continuing our Iditarod 2023 coverage and tonight we are talking all about the 24-hour breaks, the status on the trail, the heat wave and much much more but before we do that, Tony how's it going tonight? Going really well. Um, We still have Fairly clear skies down here on the Kenai, um, very warm. The snow is definitely receding where it used to be a ton of snow on my roof. It's now, uh, I can actually see some shingles. So it's really exciting. This always happens this time of year. And then we get dumped on right around uh, April 1st. Like it's a really cruel April Fool's Day joke. So yeah. I'm not. I'm not suggesting snow is over. I'm just I'm loving it while it's here. I know they're not loving it out on the trail, but I'm loving it while it's here. Yeah, I think we're in the same boat as you, and we're a few hours north of you here in Willow. Michelle, it's melting quick, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I spent the day in Palmer today, and uh, we crested right around 48 degrees. Yes, spring is upon us, not only here, but also on the Iditarod Trail as... Tony had mentioned it is very warm out there. I know Nick Petit said it is hot out there. And a lot of people are taking advantage of that. Uh, Nick supposedly is on his 24-hour break right now in Nikolai. A couple of other mushers, Dan Caduce and Jesse Royer, spent the day in Nikolai. And it looks like they're back on the trail now that the sun is going down a little bit and... uh, the temperatures are dropping, but it's my understanding, Tony, that it was a pretty rough run in the last 24 hours or so, wasn't it? It was. Um, the front of the pack came in very early this morning, just as Greg Heister had predicted. As the sun was coming up, we did have our first teams come in. Nick Petit, of course, first into that checkpoint of Nikolai and declaring his 24. He's been in there. Uh, just under 12 hours, so I would assume that he is for sure taking that 24. There's no reason not to at this point just go for the whole 24 plus differential. So he'll actually have, I think, close to 25 hours that he has to take today and this evening. Um, but we have some trail reports. Kelly Maxner, when he came in, reported that there were four to five miles of mud which he has never experienced on Iditarod. And he said that was even more difficult than your standard moguls 
that are in the burn, uh, which is the run into Nikolai. Um, he said the sled just did not want to go whenever he'd hit the, the mud. And it wasn't a consistent five miles of mud. It was snow or at least frozen tundra or whatever on, as you're going up the mogul. But when you go down into the little puddles, that's where the mud was. So it was a start-stop kind of situation. And it sounds like listening to the few mushers I got to listen to uh, earlier this morning before I had to go to work, um, it sounds like it was a rough go for everyone, including the dogs. The dogs typically do really well on this run, and it's the sled and mushers that you really have to worry about. But even the dogs with the four-foot moguls that they were dealing with, they weren't able to um, not have their own little pinball uh, moments. So it's it was a rough go into Nikolai. We saw a lot of teams stop for a long time in the checkpoint or right outside the checkpoint, uh, resting in the heat of the day as it was in the 40s on the trail there as well. Um, but we still have quite a, a big leading pack. We've got Reddington up there and Sass and, and Holmes and Deal, and it's it's been fun watching the, the trackers go Maxner's right up there as well. So it's, it's anybody's guess. Most of the, the teams that have come through McGrath, which is now, it looks like three are out of McGrath, and Brent Sass should be in shortly. I would assume that even Sass is uh, headed out of McGrath as soon as he checks in. So it's, it's, it's an exciting race. We still have a few hours before we start seeing the 24s really take effect. For sure. And Michelle, I know that you are a dog trainer by trade and you deal with a lot of client questions uh, talking about uh, what's best for their dogs. You have something to share about thermoregulation and dogs. What do you know? Well, you know, I thought that I would bring that up today because there are a lot of questions out there about what is a good temperature to work out my dog in. And that goes for cold temperatures as well as warm temperatures. And here in Alaska, a warm day could simply be 25 degrees above zero. And so I thought that we could talk about thermal regulation in dogs. And I found a little article um, by a sports vet named Dr. Gillette. And, you know, this really comes down to we have canine athletes out there that have been uh, trained during much colder and even negative 20 degree temperatures all winter long. And here we are with a great spring day for us humans that isn't so great for these dogs. Um, dogs have a different way of regulating their temperature, as all of us can probably understand. But the average body temperature of a dog is 101.5 degrees. The normal range is between 100 degrees to 102 degrees. And these are their core temperature values and are based upon a rectal thermometer reading. Now, they, it does say that temperatures can vary throughout the body, but the core temperature is what they're assessing. And when these dogs are being ran at these elevated temperatures, it increases their body temperature and it makes it very difficult for them to cool down because dogs cool down by panting. They don't sweat. And even though there's snow for them to 
roll around in and dip on the trail for, for getting some water and things, we have to remember that light reflect refraction that's occurring right now from the sun bouncing up off of the snow is actually making everything even hotter than the air temperature. And so the dogs are closer to the ground and they're absorbing the light that's also being refracted, not just being shined down on their backs. Um, so it is good idea for these mushers to be slowing things down during the day, taking their 24s and stuff like that. Because right now, Robert, what I think that a lot of us fans that have any kind of inkling about hypothermia and, hy and hyperthermia uh, versus heat stroke, you know, we're, we're, we're concerned about that right now. We are for sure. And I really appreciate our canine science moment. Tony, that's something new for the show, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, I mean, we've talked about, I think in the last couple of years, we've talked about what uh, global warming and, and heat in general do for the dogs. But uh, actually having some of that science to back it up is, is something new and, and very much needed. Um, it does bring a little bit more information into the conversation when we do say that, you know, 30 degrees is a little too warm for these dogs. 40 degrees is way too warm for these dogs. And people are looking at us like we're crazy because we're cold at 30 and 40 degrees. I was cold out there on Willow Lake. And here we are saying it's a little too warm for the dogs to be running. So, um, you know, that's just something that all of these mushers need to be aware of and not just aware of, but they're, they're looking for it. And that's why we are seeing those uh, dog mushers like Dan Caduce, like Jesse Royer, who have finished strong and in the top 10, in the top five, actually, with their full string of dogs in uh, former Iditarod races, because they are so well versed in how to care for their dogs and how to get them all to the finish line without having to slow up and, and become uncompetitive to do that. So um, it's not surprising. It, I'm kind of interested to see how this is going to play out for mushers like Holmes and Brent Sass, who, of course, live out there in the middle of nowhere in the interior, where it has been colder much of the winter. And here they are running them pretty, pretty quickly down the trail uh, in these temperatures. They are resting during the day, but it doesn't seem like they're taking more rest and waiting for it to cool down. They, they feel confident that their team can continue on in these temperatures. And it'll be interesting to see what they do after their 24. Uh, one more point on uh, Michelle's uh, segment right there. Uh, of course, just about everyone that's listening has a, the, um, the understanding that they're, they're listening through it as a pet owner. So it's interesting to hear how canine athletes like Iditarod dogs or mushing dogs or whatever are built a little bit different than the golden retriever or the pit bull or whatever that's often just laying at our feet. And also it is important to note since we have so many people that are listening outside of the United States and for whatever reason, the United States is the only <laughs> country that still deals with Fahrenheit uh, we are definitely talking about Fahrenheit temperatures here, not Celsius. I have no idea what uh, 40 degrees Fahrenheit is <laughs> in in Celsius. I would imagine about 10 or 11 or 12. But who out there in our Twitterverse or our Facebook pages knows 
what temperatures are right now out on the Iditarod Trail in Celsius. Let us know. Robert, so, one last thing, too, is it, we may be cresting at 40 degrees above zero uh, during the day, but we're still dipping down to single digits, especially in the interior at night. And so that definitely will make the dogs feel more alive and amped up and ready to go. For sure. For sure. So let's talk about Ryan Reddington. He was the first one into McGrath. That is the first of several awards that uh, the mushers can pick up along the way. What do you know about the first to McGrath award, Tony? Um, good question. And with my poor brain today, I am going to try and pull that up as quickly as I can. Um, it's, you know, it, it's normally you stop, you get to, you know, thank the sponsors and everything like that. And we did see Ryan stop long enough to receive that award. Then the sponsor, of course, will take it back and it'll be flown to Nome where the musher that will then get to receive it and take it home. But uh, he didn't stay long. So it wasn't, you know, he didn't have a lot of time. He had teams coming in behind him he knew that they were probably going to take off from McGrath as well as he was so definitely did not want to um, take too much time into that checkpoint um, the first uh, award that you get is in McGrath and it's the Alaska Air I don't know that that's actually still Alaska Air um, but it's the Alaska Air Transit Spirit of Iditarod Award uh, they will receive a pair of handmade mushers mitts with beaver and beaded leather by Loretta. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce her last name. Malel of McGrath, as well as a beaver hat handmade by Rosalie Egress, also of McGrath. Uh, Alaska Air Transit would also like to recognize the last musher to arrive in McGrath, who will be receiving a pair of handmade beaver mitts with waterproof canvas duct material. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm not sure is uh, something that we normally pay attention to is that they also give an award to basically the Red Lantern in Simograph. So that's very cool. And thank you to the sponsor who, um, it does say 2023, so it is the Alaska Air Air Transit Award again this year. And uh, that's very, very exciting. Yes, and I was unaware of the uh, the Red Lantern winner getting those awards as well. I, mm -hmm. I really like that. I don't think we've ever mentioned that on the show. So very quickly about the community of McGrath. It's one of the larger checkpoints along the trail there. It is where several teams will take their 24-hour rest, and they do so because there are some amenities there. And if you got to stay somewhere for 24 hours, you might as well have a restaurant to eat in mm -hmm. and some good food and uh, neighbors that are around that uh, will be very accommodating. And it's, it's one of those checkpoints where a lot of fans come into as well, mm -hmm. because I believe, am I not mistaken, that uh, there's pretty regular flights uh, from Anchorage and possibly Fairbanks over to mm -hmm. McGrath? Yeah, they have a regular airport during the Gold Rush Loop during the COVID race, basically is what I like to call it. Um, McGrath was kind of like the hub for the entire race uh, out on the trail. It, it works just like um, any of your big hubs like Kotzebue or Nome as far as air transportation. So 
Um, they don't, I don't think they get quite as big an airplane in there as they do Kotzebue or Nome, but they do, um, they do service quite a, a bit of that part of Alaska as far as rural Alaska and bush Alaska. So it, it is. There, there are more amenities there, as you said. That's where one of, that's where most of the mushers send a sled just in case they've been beat up during the steps and the gorge and the burn, they'll have a fresh sled in McGrath and so they just kind of cobble their, their sled until they can get to McGrath and change out um, because it's such an easy hub to ship things in and out of. So it's, it's one that we see a lot of mushers use for their 24, but it's also one that a lot of your seasoned competitors you know, like I said, they'll, they'll send stuff out, but they won't necessarily take their 24. Um, many of your competitive teams, though, they do send drop bags enough for a 24-hour stop in the next few checkpoints from McGrath to about Cripple. I think they're going to Cripple this year. Um, so that, you know, they, can, they have options. I, I know Kelly Maxner says, told Insider um, in an interview that he was hoping to 24 in Takatna. I expect that that's going to be a very busy spot, especially now that everything's back open after COVID closed so much down and, and those pies will be back up and running. So I, I have a feeling we'll see a lot of mushers stop there and, and choose not to stop here in McGrath this year. And a very quick fun fact about McGrath, according to Iditarod.com, McGrath is the last place that you can buy airline fuel until you get to at least Galena before Unicolite. So all of those Iditarod Air Force guys have to fuel up at this larger hub uh, as they work their way down the trail because Galena is a, a little bit of a distance in terms of miles from McGrath. So let's talk a little bit about uh, getting beat up on the trail a little bit. I saw a report, I believe it was from Katie Jo Dieter, that she took a a uh, quote-unquote run down the steps and really busted up her sled, and she's there, I believe, in um, in in that checkpoint uh, trying to get her sled repaired and hopefully make her way down to McGrath. I'm, I'm, like you said, she may have that second sled there. Uh, we're going to talk about Aaron Peck in a little bit, but I understand he's had a heck of a run as well, and I understand he has some potentially bruised ribs. And then we had a scratch during that uh, trek uh, as well in the last 24 hours. And it just so happened to be our musher profile of the evening. And I promise you guys, we are not trying to jinx these guys out on the trail. I know both Michelle and Tony are way more superstitious than I am. But uh, unfortunately, Jennifer Labar scratch very quickly uh, after we were off the air last night. What do you know about Jennifer, Tony? So she um, had a big crash down the Happy River steps. She said it was in the first uh, section uh, going down. And uh, Insider actually caught the crash. It didn't look any worse than any other crash we've seen in that area. But it just so happened that her left hand, she was holding on to that sled tight. You know, rule number one is never let go of the sled. And she didn't. Uh, to her credit, she held on. But the only thing she can figure is while she was holding on, as she crashed, her hand 
uh, got pinched between the handlebar and the snowbank that she's crashed into, and that dislocated or broke her finger. We're not completely sure if it's dislocated or broken, but after coming into the checkpoint of Roan, where Katie Joe, of course, was trying to get her sled fixed, and she did. She's made her way through that and through the burn, um, but... Jennifer Labar, she sat, talked with insiders. She had a snowball sitting on her finger, trying to get the swelling down. She wasn't sure if she was going to scratch at that point or not, but she chose to around 8:30 last night. Uh, after talking with medical professionals, that you know, really, she needed to come off the trail and get that finger looked at. If you have insider, look up that interview. It's pretty gnarly. She shows you that you know her left hand's ring finger. And when she's trying to straighten her fingers, that one actually just leans over her middle finger and it just looks like it's just there. So, um, you know, that she was smiling, that she was upbeat during this interview. I'm sitting there going, I would be a, a ball on the floor crying for my mom because I am just that big of a weenie. But as we keep saying, you mushers are a different breed entirely. Um, so I'm bummed for her. This was her rookie run and to have her taken out so soon is, is just so devastating. Um, as a fan, I actually have talked to a lot of her fans in the last uh, few hours and how they're just all so bummed, but really she's not the first one that has gone through that section of trail and ended up having to scratch because of a broken hand. Uh, Dee Dee John Rowe comes to mind. It happened quite a few years ago. I want to say 2010. Um, others have gotten concussions in that area. So, you know, it could have been a lot worse. And there's always next year or a few years down the road when she's ready to come back. And I hope she does. Yes. And fun fact, uh, from a musher's perspective, on my left hand, I have a finger that looks very similar to Jennifer Labar's. Uh, it, it leans all the way over, dang near to my pinky finger as well. And mine happened to get caught in one of the big rings on a dog collar when we were hooking up one time on a Thanksgiving Day run. And I went, ended up doing the run, coming back and standing next to the wood stove and pulled off my glove and my finger just sort of flopped over. And it has never been the same since. So finger injuries are pretty common in uh, Iditarod and in mushing. And I'm sure we could tell story after story about mushers that have lost fingers from uh, accidents and mishaps <laughs> and, and whatnot. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit as we go. So one other quick uh, trail update. We talked about who's in the lead pack with uh, Ryan, Brent, Jesse, Richie, and Kelly. But we always talk about who is at the rear at the time of recording. And right now it is Greg Vitello, uh, Gerhardt, Jed, Bailey, uh, Greg's son, Joanna and Jason are in those uh, last positions there. So that is our trail report. And before we jump into our musher of the day, I saw right before airtime a report on, I believe it was the local news station. You were just talking about Didi Jandro, Tony. It's my understanding that right after the restart, I guess right down on uh, the Big Sioux River, there was a Palmer couple out there and they got married on the Iditarod Trail and it was officiated by 
DD genre. Did you see that story? I did. Actually, we saw the bride uh, at the ceremonial start. She had she was one of the Iditarriders. Um, so the story broke kind of back on Saturday, but she rode that in uh, preparation for her wedding the next day. And they did. They went out there onto the river. Um, Didi officiated. Uh, I'm sure I actually just saw somebody comment on it saying, you know, the mushers going by thought they were probably thought they were already hallucinating. So early into the race, which we know those hallucinations don't start until days later after no sleep. But uh, very, very sweet and interesting story. Um, just just so cool. Uh, I even thought to myself, I was like, all right, forget the Disney wedding. That sounds too expensive now. Let's just go ahead and go with this idea of uh, getting married on the Iditarod Trail. What a cool thing to do. I know. And that photo that they snapped on uh, on the website mm -hmm. there happened to have a dog team running right by at the exact same yep. time of, of the yep. kiss. And I thought that was pretty cool. Do you know by chance who she was the Iditarider for? Uh, not off the top of my head. I don't. I have to actually look through my pictures and see if I got the bride in any of the pictures or if she was like uh, the Mackie kids and she got out um, before she came through the AMC. I don't know if she went the whole way or not. Well, if you get a chance, please post that and definitely tag us on there <laughs> so we can uh, we can share it on social media. So, Michelle, any other news or notes before we jump into our musher profile? Uh, when we hit our 25-year mark, we are not getting remarried on Iditarod. Damn. <laughs> and, and that's coming up pretty quickly, I think, in just a couple of years. I'm terrible with dates and anniversaries, so I'll, I'll probably get uh, slapped uh, on the back of the 2026? head. 2026? 2026, so a couple of years from now. Uh, Tony, any other, other news or updates before we jump into our, sto or our musher story? No, but just in response to that, she just said not on the Iditarod Trail. Ah. What about the Yukon Quest Trail? It could be. We could go up to Fairbanks. Uh, no, no dog sledding. <laughs> no, no. Well, I, 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 I have supported and been married to this Iditarod dream since 1999, so I get to hold that off on my own little dream but hold on i i'm gonna leave this right here and i'm not gonna tell the the entire thing but i understand that a lot of people especially uh asian folks make their way up near fairbanks to catch a glimpse of the northern lights because it's under my understanding that it has something to do with a fertility god do well, both? we can't have children any longer, so that's not even necessary. <laughs> All right, guys. So, so that is that is really behind the scenes stuff. Uh, those are little nuggets you will not hear anywhere else on any other mushing podcast for sure. So, let's jump into our story, our musher profile of the day. We are talking about Aaron Peck. Michelle, can you do a quick bio read on Iditarod.com, please? Uh, yes. Now that I can actually see who we're talking about. Whoa, he's from Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada. How interesting. Um, Aaron and the Elevation Huskies. That's a different type of sled dog kennel name. 
They are continuing to pursue excellence on the world stage of distance mushing. The Iditarod has the toughest competition in the sport, so that is where Aaron and his team need to be in order to challenge themselves against the best. All right, so... Uh, that was just uh, like two short little sentences for his biography. I tried to make it sound as magical and theatrical as I could, <laughs> but I don't have any other information about Aaron. That sounds like that sounds like a soundbite from Sports Center, doesn't it, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I actually really like it. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of fans want a little more than that. So I actually, I went to the source. I asked his better half okay. for a little bit more information about him. And uh, I just asked her two questions. My first question was, um, what is one thing you want fans to know about who Aaron is and what makes him tick? And her answer was, Aaron has been running dogs for 30 years now, started out when he was 13. He's the best husband and best dad to our four children I could have ever asked for. Since having a family, especially with having children, life's perspectives have changed a little, I would say. Winning the Iditarod isn't the most important thing in life anymore. It's still something he works towards and maybe more powerfully so, but it isn't the defining thing anymore. It is much more about the setting an example for our children to be resilient, to have character, to keep trying, even when things don't go your way. He's tough and level-minded. He also handles chaos pretty well. He has to with living, uh, he has to with having four kids running two businesses, plus a competitive sled dog team. Life is busy always. He loves his dogs and couldn't imagine a life without them. And he gives thanks to God for all the blessings in our life. And then my second question to her was, does Aaron have any traditions or superstitions during a race? And she answered, he doesn't have any traditions or superstitions. He takes each year as it comes and tries to take along the lessons he's learned from previous years. So that was just uh, a little bit more, and I absolutely loved her answer, and I'm kind of hooked now on trying to get that perspective from uh, the members back home, be them handlers or family, to give us a little insight that maybe the musher didn't think to write or, you know, was too humble or embarrassed to write. So uh, thank you, Ava, so much for uh, answering my questions this morning. Uh, and before I say my little piece about this, it's my understanding we uh, we we talked about earlier about Aaron taking a crash there and having some bruised ribs, but mm-hmm. Ava set the record straight on that, didn't she? She did. She was the one that actually uh, reported it out to social media world, and I really hope I am saying her name right and it's not Eva, but either way, Mrs. Peck. Um, uh, but she, she then came back on a few hours later because she was getting so many concerned messages from fans. Um, and she basically said, you know what, guys, I'm not worried about it. This is part of, uh, how I did is run. Most of them get banged up out there. He's still doing fine. Don't worry about him. If she's not worried about him, you don't need to be worried about him. There you go. Definitely check out Aaron Peck over at elevationsleddogs.ca. Make sure you hit that CA because uh, it is a Canadian website where he is from. He happens to be the only Canadian 
in the race this year. And I'm looking at his archives here. I have been doing this for the last couple. He started uh, running the Iditarod in 2000. He finished his rookie year with 12 days, 17 hours, 48 minutes. He ran again in 2005, 2009, 2013, 18, 19, 20, 21, and now in 2022. He did scratch in 2009 and 2020. His best finish was in 2022 in 10th place with 9 days, 12 hours, 10 minutes, and 30 seconds. And he has prize money of $41,037.88. So not a rookie by any stretch. He's been doing this for a couple of decades now. He's taken off t- taken off a couple of years here and there. But I remember seeing a interview with him before I did a rod this year and him saying he is back. He's excited to do I did a rod again, and he's looking forward to uh, – continuing on his quest for the last great race. Anything else on Aaron before we move on? Just wanted to say he's right there in the mix for a top 10 finish. He's running right now on the GPS tracker in 11th place, um, and he's getting ready to slingshot past a couple of more teams, it looks like, who are um, resting on the trail, and he chose to rest earlier today. So, uh, looking like he's sitting right there consistently where he has been the last few years. Very good. So let's jump over to our uh, concluding segment here on the Iditarod coverage, and that is our Iditic question of the day. What was our question last night, Tony, and what kind of responses did you get? Uh, I got a huge response um, from both Facebook and Twitter. I was able to get that question out to everybody. In fact, I even had Mark Nordman chime in on Facebook. Uh, Though, to be fair, I did tag him uh, in uh, in a comment. And so he jumped in and basically answered the standard answer that you said I wasn't allowed to uh, take for this question. The question was, what one musher are you following above any and all not the one that you think is necessarily going to win but the one that you're most interested to follow and man did I get a lot of answers um, many of which I totally expected Twitter of course very heavy on Nick Petit Um, he has a very big fan base that overlaps many of the ugly dogs who of course came into the sport mainly through Blair Braverman and Quince Mountain Um, But on Facebook, I got quite a few different names, some of which I didn't expect, but we had everyone from Milla to Deke to um, Ryan Reddington, of course, got quite a bit. Hunter Keith got more. Uh, Barb Reddington would not play the game correctly and kept saying that she was going to cheer for both Ryan and Hunter. And so when I asked her, Say by some amazing feat, they're both running one and two. They're on front street, neck and neck. It's going to take a photo finish. Who, which knows of which dog crosses under the broad arch first. Who are you hoping it is? And she said, whoever listens to me cheer loudest and comes fastest. So she didn't want to play the game. And, and I got that quite a bit too. But Jesse Royer is another one that got it quite a bit. The Vitellos, everyone's loving the father-son story. Um, and then 
I will say that I am going to let one slide, and that was the Barringtons, or as one person on Twitter called them, the Baring Twins, um, because they they basically finished together anyway. So I'm going to count that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when when I asked uh, Mark, or I asked somebody else basically who they would choose down Front Street, and I said, and if Mark Nordman has to make that choice. Who do you want him to pick? And Mark answered with, you just never know. Looking forward to a photo finish, whoever they are. <laughs> so, so I just, I, I want to give a shout out. Thanks, Mark. I, I guess, you know, it was while he was waiting for people to come into McGrath. So uh, thanks for chiming in there. That was pretty cool. We had Wade Mars, Dan Caduce, of course. Um, lots for Hunter and lots for Nick. Brent Sass got a couple of uh, chime in. Everyone is hoping Ryan or Jesse Holmes. Uh, someone said Brent Sass or Jesse Royer, and I said, you got to pick one or the other, and they said, well, Brent's already won, so let's give one to Jesse. Uh, Kelly Maxner got a couple nods, as well as Christian Turner, Matt Thaler. So everyone's getting love. Uh, Bridget Watkins, a lot of fans also uh, answered with either Katie Joe, Bridget Watkins, or Gerhard Seart. Um, because of their stories from last year where they were so close to finishing less than 100 miles to go and they had to end their races due to injury and storms. So, uh, you know, I, I really loved it. I really expected just really heavy on the front runners because we've seen that so much in the past, but so much love for just about every musher out there. And so keep those coming. Like, I, like I've said before, just because, you know, we're not going to read them all off um, every night. We're doing a different question every night. Keep them coming because the conversations that fans are having with one another, answering these questions is what it's really all about for me. As much as I love reading off all this stuff on, on air, it's more about uh, connecting and, and having these conversations. I really like this. This is the first time that we've really uh, did a concert, concerted effort to ask questions and tag them and, and keep the information flowing. And somebody already stole my thunder, but I'm going to go first here on my favorite <laughs> to follow. And it is the Barringtons. And I'm going to quantify that by saying they were one person for a little bit uh, before they were born. So... <laughs> So that is my answer. I'm going to stick with it. My, my... I love that you're cheating <laughs> on your own question that you said that no one could cheat on. Well, it, I love that. It, it, it is true. It is within the rules. They were technically one person for a period of time. So uh, <laughs> so we. I'm going to go with it. I, I, as, I as the science officer on deck, I'm going to say, hmm, that's awful close. <laughs> so I'm going to say... <laughs> I'm going to say the Barringtons, they're always fun. Uh, I, I love uh, connecting with them just around town, as we've said on other broadcasts. They're always so nice to everybody. If they see you in the grocery store, they'll run up and say hello and, and talk mushing. And not all, not all mushers do that, but they do for sure. So let's have Michelle go next. Michelle, who is your favorite musher to follow? Only one person uh, in this year's race. Well, as the outsider, um, I'm going to pull a Mar uh, Mark Nordman and say, you know, I think that they're all great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you don't have one person? Well, you kind of took my person. 
Oh, I took her person too. <laughs> okay. All right. So Tony, you are you are uh last on this one tonight. Who is uh your musher fan for the year? Well, I'm not going to cheat because I <laughs> like to follow rules and I like to play by the rules. And just like they had on their little sign about no drones at the restart, you know, respect the race, respect the rules, respect the teams. I'm going to respect our I did a question and go with only one name. And I'm really, really pulling for Katie Joe. I absolutely adore her. I got to chat with her in Nome a few years back in 2019 when we were trying to figure out when the teams were coming in because you couldn't really hear the siren from our hotel and the uh, trackers, our internet was so slow that we couldn't really use the trackers. So um, I just adore her. She's absolutely hysterical, so charming. Um, and I really want her to make it all the way. So I've probably now jinxed her and I am so sorry, Katie, if I did. Um, but I, I just, I, I love her. I loved seeing her at the picnic when she was signing up. Uh, and I, I'm really just really hoping she has a great run. I know she's already, she's already had her bumps and bruises. So we don't need a, we don't need a repeat later on in this race. Top cock hills better be very nice to her or I'm going to come down and lay waste to them myself. There you go. I don't go. know how, so but I will. So, so I have I have to just get this out there, you guys, with all this jinxing and stuff. Um, I'm I'm gonna put it out there that we need a creator that can create a video game for us, much like Madden Football, <laughs> where his featured player was always jinxed that year. The the the, the Madden curse right? on, on the uh, uh, on the cover. I'm just gonna say that we need a mushing video game. There you go. I'm looking at a PS5 <laughs> as we speak, so it could be it could be uh in the works. So Tony, what is our musher question for tonight? We've spent quite a bit of time talking about last night's and I'm sure we will talk about this one tomorrow as well. What do you think? Uh, what's the question? So it was really funny because I actually, I must have been in your head uh, earlier today because I tweeted out just as a random thing, trying to get some inspiration on what to ask myself when I go to uh, ask these family members about their mushers. You know, what's one thing that the media does not already ask? mushers that you wish they would and so that's the question tonight is if you could ask any musher any question what would that question be so that's how i did a question i know you've already answered it a little bit on twitter but i'm going to open it up to the entire fan base now it's it's a great question because it could be so varied i mean it could be uh, mm -hmm. you know, something about the race. It could be, what is your favorite TV show? What is your favorite, uh, uh, movie snack? It could literally be anything. So guys, when you're answering that question over on social media and it's going to be hashtagged, I did a question. Don't just think about what you would ask them if you were on the trail or ask, ask what you think that you'd want to know best, because I think the true, glory of this is finding out a little bit more about the mushers themselves. And if 
Uh, Tony is going to attempt to talk to the family members of the social media folks that are uh, updating these guys' pages when they're on the trail. She may just get a chance to ask these questions to uh, these folks, and we may get honest-to-goodness answers. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. So Tony will post that right after we air. It's sort of already posted, but she will tag it correctly. So it will be easy to find on social media. So Tony, you had alluded to what's going to happen in the next day or so. A lot of folks are going to be taking their 24-hour rests in McGrath and Takatna, and then a couple of checkpoints down the way from there. What else do you expect in the next 24 hours? Because we're technically going to be through the first third of the race and that middle third is where the stories really develop isn't it it is yeah um i think we're going to start to see the true leaders um not pull away because we're still trying to get to the 24 but i think we are going to start seeing that shake out especially once nick Petit um, leaves the checkpoint tomorrow morning um, off of his 24. It's it's still to me. I'm still trying to figure out is was this his plan to rest so soon in Nikolai? I think Greg Heister and I'm not really trying to steal Greg's thunder or you know just steal all of his thoughts or anything like that. But he did pose a, a very interesting factoid and stat where he said the last time a champion took his 24 so early in the race, happened in about 1992. He believed it was Martin Boozer was the last one to win after having 24 in Nikolai. Now, we've seen Boozer 24 in Nikolai since then, but he hasn't won with that strategy. So it's interesting to me. I kind of wonder if the 24 was because that's where Nick had planned to do that or if there's something going on in the team where he felt like a 24 was needed now and not in a day or two. So to see how his team bounces back and recovers after a 24-hour run or rest it will be key to knowing what to expect in this next leg. Right now, I'm not sure I'd put him in leader contention just because of our more modern history of who runs how and wins. Um, but it's very interesting to see Reddington, both Reddington and Deal, I got to see them come into McGrath before we started recording. And both of their do- dog teams were still so energized and ready to go. Um, whereas Jesse Holmes, they were pretty chill in comparison. So I'm really excited to see how these teams that are pushing so hard in, in the heat with resting during the day, but still staying on their their regular schedule that I think they had had planned since the beginning. Um, It'll be interesting to see how they all come off of their 24, which we won't see until Thursday or Friday. I really like that, uh, if that is his strategy, because technically he only has 16 more hours of mandatory rest, that eight-hour mandatory in White Mountain, just uh, 70-some-odd miles from the finish, and then another... Uh, eight-hour rest somewhere along the trail. So he could literally burn up the rest of the trail as long as he does it safely. And I think that's an important thing to note. Uh, As long as he does it safely, I like this strategy a little bit. And my last thought on that, Tony, wasn't it uh, Martin just a couple of years ago that ran, I don't know if it was to Nikolai or McGrath, 
pretty much nonstop from the start. Uh, you know, that huge 200 mile run pretty much without any camping. Was that right? Yeah, I believe it was in Nikolai that he stopped in 24 um, after that big, long run. And he was. He was just eating it up. And we were all sitting back trying to analyze it. Those, even Danny Stevie was just like, what is he doing? Um, and his race kind of blew up after that. The dogs did not bounce back and get those speeds back after the 24-hour-plus differential. I think one of the reasons why he did it was he was so close to the front. I think he might have even been bib number two which means he had the longest rest out of everybody but his dogs just were like no we're not we're not running those speeds anymore uh you know even with with the 26 27 28 hour whatever it was that year um rest we're just not doing it dad we're gonna we're gonna take it a mile or two slower so that's that's what we're gonna be looking for with petit uh coming off of this rest tomorrow and am I correct? Is that the same year that he had the tent, that yellow tent that he had that he popped up there next to the dog team? Or was that a, a year or two yeah. before that? Uh, it might have been a year or two before that. He's, he had that pop-up tent for quite a while, and he was quoted as saying one year that, you know, he's the old man not winning anymore. So uh, when he comes into the checkpoint, there's a lot of people and not enough room in those little tents and cabins that they have set up for mushers. So he just had to bring his own. I like it. And uh, he was quoted there uh, at the restart that uh, he's enjoying his little retirement. He was hanging out with his grandkids. It looked like they had a fire pit and marshmallows and the whole nine yards. And he was in his trademark red flannel hat. And you can you can see Martin just about anywhere uh, around the valley. You'll, you know, it's him. If, if you see that hat be bopping around Fred Myers for sure. <laughs> so Michelle, anything else you want to mention before we close? No, I think it was a great show. Very good. And Tony, anything from you before we go? No, I'm just kind of bummed because I won't be able to be on air with you guys on Thursday. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where that's where the race is really going to get hot. Yeah, looking forward to uh, doing this uh, with Michelle. I, I guess we'll, we'll talk about what we're going to talk about tomorrow. But for sure, we, we're welcoming you back on Friday. So with that, <laughs> I would in, implore our listeners to make sure they subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And we're a little bit all over the place this year. Uh, a couple of episodes we posted at 10 a.m. Alaska, or excuse me, 10 p.m. Alaska time. Yesterday, we recorded at about 4 o'clock Alaska time, 3 o'clock Alaska time. Tonight, we're doing it right around dinner time. So we are all over the place, and that's not by design. So hit that subscribe button, and you will get these episodes as soon as they drop. And also, if you care to support our show, make sure you head over to patreon.com slash firstpawmedia. And you will get some exclusive perks. We have got a couple of new Patreon sponsors since the race started. So thank you very much. We will get your prize packs out to you as soon as we possibly can. And with that, we will be back on the air tomorrow. We're looking forward to continuing our daily coverage. Until next time, goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.